another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream, you can. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't dictate it a, diff- a bit differently today uh, than usual. And you're going to hear this more and more as we move into uh, 2010. I'm at not in the personal mobile studio. I'm in my personal stationary studio, my home office, uh, recording directly to uh, a computer with Audacity, so you're getting that better audio quality today. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about two things. I'm going to do some follow-up on this global warming stuff that I've been talking a little bit about lately. I know some of you don't dig the political connotations and things, but I've been you know, questions on some things and challenged on some things. So that's going to be about five minutes of the beginning in today's show uh, with some good reason and maybe some things that I need to say more often when I challenge that status quo level of bullshit out there. And then the rest of the show today, we're going to talk about the the concepts of disaster commonality and disaster probability, part of the modern survival philosophy and how um, not only, we've talked about those before, but I'm going to talk to you today about why I've merged them into a single concept, why I've decided they are not different things and how they apply to your life and how they should affect your planning for disaster, um, shit hit the fan, uh, day-to-day living and everything in between. Before that, though, we do have to knock out our housekeeping. Uh, Today is Wednesday. And it is December the 2nd, 2009. This is going to be episode 328 of the Survival Podcast. Um, I am going to tell you a little bit about the weather today. Why am I home today? Well, I'm home today because it's snowing. Let me say that again. I'm home today because it's snowing. That's part of why I decided to do this little bit of follow-up on global warming today. It's December 2nd, and I'm in Dallas, Texas, and it is not snowing a little bit. It is snowing a lot. I'm right now losing a bet with my wife about whether or not it would stick. I said, we might get some flurries. Uh, it's coming down, and my entire backyard is uh, now under a thin cover of white. So uh, those of you that think I get away with uh, these extremely mild winters down here all the time and, and nothing ever freezes... Um, Sometimes you're right, today you're wrong, and I'm sitting here in snow uh, doing today's podcast. Just thought maybe you'd get a kick out of knowing that. Uh, let's knock out our housekeeping, though. Number one, make sure you take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help support the show and make sure that it's available for you. Sponsor of the day, number one, today, Solutions from Science and their Survival Seed Bank. What this is, folks, I want to make sure people understand this. This is not you buy a whole bunch of seeds to go plant next, next, you know, next spring. You could do that, uh, but honestly, there would be more affordable ways to do that. The survival seed bank is seeds that are set up and ready for long-term storage up to 20 years or more. Um, If stored at 70 degrees or lower temperatures, they will last up to 20 years or longer. What that means is that these are seeds that you put away for that day when you need to rely on a, on, a, on a bank of seeds, the same way the governments of the world have created their own seed bank uh, for all the old heirloom seeds, uh, so that if they're ever necessary, they're there. It's having it's just like storing food. In other words, you wouldn't buy Mountain House and it, it shows up today, and uh, you crack it open and cook it for a uh, full dinner out of it tonight. You could. Nothing wrong with it, but that's probably not the way that that product was intended to be used. So that's what the Survival Seed Bank is. I've had some questions about it, uh, and I'm going to do some testing on the longevity of it. Now, obviously, it's going to take a while to do that, but uh, I'll make you aware of it. Uh, Next sponsor of the day, Tea Party Silver. Great stuff, beautiful coins. 
Got to check these things out every time they come up with something new. Um, I'm buying it. I just bought six more coins from them. And uh, I'll tell you what, you get great personalized service from the owner, a great pricing, great coins. Um, so with that, let's knock out the next part of housekeeping. Get involved with the forum. Leave it at that. Next part of the housekeeping, hey, check out our gear shop, T-shirts, things like that. Uh, Sister Wolf and TW out there in California. I want you guys to know, they own that. That's not owned by me. I work with them. I license the brand and logo to them. But instead of taking and creating another um, component to TSP, I've actually empowered people to be their own entrepreneur. And that's how I want to go forward with new things added to TSP is helping others. And and that's part of the gear shop. Um, If you want to support the show directly, Member Support Brigade is the way to do that. A whole bunch of free stuff, a whole bunch of value. $50 a year, $150 of value delivered on day one, $0.20 an episode to support the show. And with that, the housekeeping's knocked out. Um, I also want to say one more thing, though. Everybody that voted for Podcast of the Year, thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for supporting me. Um, the reason you couldn't vote yesterday is the voting ended on the 30th of November, and we can't vote anymore. We're done. Uh, it, it's going to be the 12th of December when they're going to announce the winners. I feel really good. I think we can win. Also, those of you who have written me yesterday asking for the address to send boxes to troops, as soon as I'm done recording today, I'm going to send those out. So uh, there is a bit of a delay when you ask for it because I have a billion things I'm doing. But I'm trying to get everybody back within 24 hours of the request on that. And if you don't know what that's about because this is your first show, we're supporting troops over in Afghanistan this year at uh, FOB Spurwingar. And if you want to send packages to the troops, send me an email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, and I will send you an email back with the address. I've been asked not to make this address published publicly due to the sensitive nature of uh, uh, who these troops are and where they're at and the danger that they're in. All right, so with that, let's let's get into this a little bit today. Let's start out with this global warming thing. I said this earlier this week. There's been some comments on the blog. Whenever I talk about this subject, I get all kinds of emails from haters telling me that I'm a, you know, like a Holocaust denier or something like that. And, um, you know, here's what bothers me. Whenever I get these emails from people uh, that are telling me how wrong I am, I never get fact with them. I just get things like, you know, oh, the facts are in. I don't, I don't know why you, you deny this stuff, you know. Um, everything is, uh, uh, you know, already proven, and haven't you looked at the graphs, and, you know, how can you deny this? But I don't get people saying, well, Jack, you're wrong because of the following reasons, um, because there are no reasons. And the reason I'm even talking about this today is because I think it's bigger than global warming. I think that if you'll look at this the right way, you'll realize that this can be used against you in all walks of life. That every day, uh, the government, industry, etc., make pictures that they put in front of you. These pictures take the form of, you know, creative video cartography of an of a of a polar bear sitting on a little block of ice, as though he's the, the ice broke off and he drifted out into the water. Folks, polar bears swim up to two miles offshore and further. They like it. The polar bear that they have on that iceberg, he's hanging out there. He's cool. But they make it with a dramatic pullback and some music. Or they do it with graphs. And the graphs are the one that I want to explain to you today. And then I'm going to wrap up with what I really think is wrong with this planet so that you don't think I'm just, you know, some right-wing Republican shrill that's on the side of big business because I am not. I am not their friend. You'll, You'll understand that. But first I have to explain how graphs work to you. 
because most people don't know this. See, I was in sales and I was in marketing. Those are my two career passions that I that I did up until I found Survival Podcast. And I went into a lot of boardrooms and I made a lot of presentations about sales territory and marketing programs. So I'm very familiar with how you manipulate a graph. So let me explain to you how you do this. When the human mind looks at a graph, they see that bottom axis, that horizontal axis is zero or the starting point, whatever the starting point is, or the normal point, whatever the normal point would be. And by changing that bottom axis without manipulating the data in any way, shape, or form, I can change the picture of the graph. Let me explain this to you. Let's say you gave me a new sales territory and you said, Jack, you run the sales territory, report back to us in two years about how the territory is performed. Now, now let's say that in the first year, um, that territory sold $1 million worth of goods. And in the second year, that territory sold $2 million worth of goods. And now I'm at the beginning of the third year, and I'm presenting the past two years to you. Well, in my graph, I'm going to make the baseline zero. Because I'm going to have year one sales at zero. I'm going to have them climbing to $2 million in, in year one. And I'm going to have them climbing, or $1 million in year one and $2 million in year two. And it's going to look like a constant doubling of my business. It's going to look very good. I might even put the months in there or put the, you know, every three months in there in the graph on quarters. But basically I'm going to have the sales doubling every year. And that's going to look really good and really impressive. But what if, what if I do, let's say, $2 million in my first year, and uh, in my second year, I only do $3 million. And what's going to happen is the graph is going to come off the zero and peak, and then it's going to start to level, and it looks like in front of the board, hey, Jack, you did really good in your first year. You're still growing, but boy, your sales are leveling off. Well, the way I might address that is let's then I would say, okay, well, what were my forecasted sales for my first year? And maybe my forecast, because I wrote it myself, was a million. Okay, so now I take my baseline from zero to one million, and what that'll do is, is that'll make a doubling every two years again. I know that might be hard to understand, but it basically works this way: my 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 bottom point is now the million dollar forecast, and I went double my forecast. Okay, now on the now I haven't doubled anything. I've I've only done half, or, or I've only gone up by fifty percent over the prior year, but the graph will look like it doubled. And just by changing the zero points or wherever we start that bottom graph, we can change the way that graph looks. And everybody knows this in business. And everybody does this in business. So don't think that the scientists that are putting this crap out and the marketing departments that are being given the crap that the scientists are putting out are immune to it. Don't think that they... uh, they, they're, you know, there's some kind of like Jesus people or something, and, and they're not going to fudge these numbers around. Because what I just told you isn't even about fudging numbers. It's about creating a different response in you when you look at the picture that's created. I don't even have to fudge the numbers. Now, what's come out of ClimateGate? What have we actually learned? Things that have happened in ClimateGate? We've learned things like they had this one graph, and even with all their manipulation, they couldn't get this blip to go away. The blip was the cooling trend of the past nine years. Yeah, see, the Earth's been getting cooler for nine years. So you know what they did? They added um, a tenth of a degree to the data. Just added it. There's an email between two scientists that put out the report. Well, just add a tenth of a degree. Or it's thirty hundredths of three hundredths of a degree or something. I don't know what it is. But they just added. They added to the data. They just did it. Why? Because they didn't like the way the picture looked. And that's what I want you to understand. It's not about global warming. It's not. It's about every crisis that the government puts in front of you with a graph. You better start asking yourself, 
that bottom line, what does it represent? When was it put in place? And what came before it? Without that understanding, you don't really understand the graph. Uh, let me put it to you this way. I could show you a graph of the stock market, right? And I could start that graph of the stock market in February of 2009 right now. And you'd look at that graph and you'd go, this is the greatest place in the world to put my money. But all I have to do is pull back the start point on the graph to, let's say, February of 2007. And you go, that's horrible. I don't want anything to do with that. Look at that. But all I've done, have I manipulated the data? Have I lied? Have I deceived? I've just changed where I start the point on the graph. They do this not just in climate change. They do this in how many kids are going to drown in a bucket if we don't make a new law that buckets have to be stored upside down or any other nonsense. How uh, you know a, a new law for how many children need to go in car seats or how big a kid can be before he doesn't go in a car seat. All this crap is manipulation. And you need to understand it not just with global warming but in all walks of life because it's how the government and it's how corporations sell you on advocate, advocating your liberty. So please think about that, even if you don't believe what I have to say about global warming. Now let me tell you how I feel about environmentalism and what man is doing to the planet. I think we are absolutely, totally raping and destroying this planet. I think that the pollution that we're pumping into our atmosphere and into our ground and into our biospheres is disgraceful. I think we are rapidly deforesting most of the planet. We are turning once fertile fields into fallow salt flats. And we're doing that because of the monoculture agricultural system and the way that we irrigate crops today with no respect or no concerns for runoff. I think that we are releasing bioengineered uh, foods into our biosphere that then go out and cross-pollinate that we cannot control because once we put a living organism into the biosphere, we can no longer control it. I think that a lot of the supposed eco-friendly things that we're supposed to do are actually destroying the environment. You know those pretty little squiggly light bulbs that I was so in love with when I first started doing the show? Not so in love with them anymore since I found out they all have mercury in them. They have a lifespan of about five to seven years. That means we're about two years away from the beginning of mass failures of all these eco-friendly lights that have been installed and the biggest dumping of mercury that's ever occurred in the history of mankind in the name of eco-friendliness. I think that we're depleting our fossil fuels. No, aquifers. Now you thought I was going to say fuels, didn't I, if you've never heard this before. What is a fossil aquifer? It's a great storage sea of water underground, fresh water. There's massive fossil aquifers. And people like China, India, and the United States of America are pumping the water out of the fossil aquifers, depleting them down to nothingness. And what's that going to do? Eventually, we're not going to have enough water for the irrigation of our crops. And we're using this massive amount of water not to save things, but to make them worse by watering so intensely and so wastefully that we're actually creating salted earth. The governments of Australia have decided to solve this problem by giving farmers pumps so they can pump the salt water out and into a drainage system that runs to the sea, making the problem worse and worse and worse until the land gets abandoned and the cycle starts all over again. 
See, I think that there are so many things that we need to be doing to save our environment. It's it's, it's disgusting on its face. We need to be incentivizing um, sustainable agriculture. We definitely do need to be looking for alternative methods of energy production, but we need to be empowering individuals to own and control their own production methods. I don't want GE with a million solar panels in the desert. That's not the solution to the problem. I want Tom to have four kilowatts worth of them on his roof. That's a solution to the problem. We need to be really working to establish sustainable agricultural pro- uh, processes across the United States. See, I'm a huge environmentalist. I'm a massive environmentalist. And I, 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 I practice what I preach. I use agriculture, uh, safe um, organic agriculture and permaculture techniques in my backyard. When we finally move to Arkansas, I'm, my, my intent is to turn the entire five acres into a permaculture paradise that largely provides us everything uh, that we need. So I'm not a hater of the planet. I don't want the planet to die. I just don't believe that the CO2 that comes out of your tailpipe is the real problem. You know, I'm concerned with the real problems. The ones that if we address them are hard to address, difficult to address, can't be handled with a a scam like cap and trade. And here's the big thing. They don't make government more powerful. They don't make government more wealthy. They don't redistribute your wealth to people that don't work. And they don't empower giant corporations to make billions of dollars on a scam on the backs of mostly the American people. That doesn't mean I don't care about our environment. It means that I don't buy into bullshit. And you don't have to believe anything that I've said today. Go check things out for yourself. And do me one favor if you still believe in this global warming crap as I watch about a half inch of snow now accumulated in my backyard while I've been talking. Um, I'll put a link in today's show notes to a thing called the Global Warming Skeptics Handbook. Please read it. Read it. Use your own decision-making process. I might get very passionate when I tell you what I believe. I will never tell you what you should believe or how you should think. Please make your own decisions, but do so in an informed manner. This has been a public service announcement by Jack Spierko. All right, let's get on with the other topic that we're going to talk about today, and that is disaster probability and disaster commonality. Let's start out with what is disaster probability? Well, when I first started doing the show, in fact, as I was getting ready to do the show, I had a number of challenges, and one was how I could possibly make survivalism and prepping and permaculture and alternative energy and all the things that we talk about, things like growing a garden, creating a a, a sustainable agricultural system of your own, or just storing food in five-gallon buckets, how I could make people that normally don't listen to things like that, don't think that they're important, open up to them. And in that, and I said that was a challenge because though I wanted to serve the existing prepper marketplace, the, the, the people that were out there that already got this, that were looking for a show like this, what was more important is that I had an impact, a huge impact over time that would save the lives of people. And that's a noble goal, and I don't know if I've achieved it or not, but I believe that we should always set goals for ourselves that actually seem unreachable, because as we reach for those goals, even if we fail to meet them, we end up accomplishing major things, where if we set very simple, low-end goals, even if we meet them, it doesn't really matter. We have mundane results. So... I wanted to reach out to as many people as possible, and that's where the show credo of living the life you want if times get tougher, even if they don't, came from. Because I thought that would make people understand that these things are in their best interest, whether or not we actually ever had a disaster. So the what could go wrong argument just kind of got pushed away. 
But then I thought, well, we do have to talk about what could go wrong because sooner or later people do pull their head out of the sand and go, hey, we do have a fragile human condition. Something could go wrong. What might that be? And my thought was, well, the way to make people understand this is to make it personal. So we'll start out with the things that could happen to them that their next-door neighbor won't even care about. Things like, uh, Tom, hey, sorry to tell you this today. It's uh, it's a rough day for a lot of people here at the firm, but uh, we're doing a round of layoffs, and uh, you are among those being laid off. Please go see Tammy in HR for your information and uh, your COBRA paperwork and things like that. How many people have heard that this year? Or, ma'am, sorry to be standing here at your door. Um, but I'm Officer Smith with the local PD, and um, your husband was killed in a car accident today. Horrific, horrific things, but they're things that happen every day, and they impact families. But your neighbor might care if they know you as a friend, but it doesn't really affect their life very much now, does it? And then I said, okay, well, what's what's the next most likely thing to occur? And as I looked around at the news and you know, tornadic activity and thunderstorms and ice storms it's really kind of the neighborhood level or large you know general area disaster that is the next thing that impacts people uh on a heavy level uh we can go to things that are long ago like hurricane andrew in south florida to see this type of disaster uh we can go to things like the la riots to see this kind of moving into that bigger scope of disaster and then the next thing was the large region disaster the thing that went across several states Hurricane Katrina. As, as horrific as that was, we have to be honest with ourselves in that it, while it had large repercussions across the economy, it really did affect people that lived in Dallas, Texas that much other than a bunch of people from New Orleans showed up. I mean, that's, that's the reality. There was still a limit to the disaster's scope. And with that... I said, well, what are the things that we always talk about with these Hollywood disasters, the big ones, the things that, you know, are kind of, let's say, sexy topics? You know, these were the things that preppers feared the most, and these are the things that people made movies about. And when you talked about disaster preparations and disaster preparedness, the people that, I, I don't know how to put this, were, would immediately shut down and say, I'm not interested in that, because that's what they thought you were always talking about. And these were things like a global pandemic. Uh, these were things like a complete and total collapse of the economy, um, a solar flare that shuts down the electrical grid. And the thing was, as we looked at them, we had to be honest with ourselves that all of them actually had the potential to occur, but they had a very low probability. And by the time I was done with this analysis, what I realized is that as I looked across the spectrum of things, the less number of people affected by the individual disaster, the greater probability there was that you as an individual would have to deal with it. In other words, you were much more likely to have that horrible visit from a police officer, a really bad day at work, which becomes your last day at work, uh, or let's say a lo local regional weather event that pulls the roof off of your house than you actually were to ever see the day that we had the total 100% complete collapse of the United States of economy uh, a la Zimbabwe style, where it would take you $100 billion to buy a can of Coke. Not that it couldn't occur, but it was a hell of a lot less likely. And that became disaster probability in my modern survival philosophy. That we need to, to, to look at probabilities, and if it was true, 
that the thing that was most likely to happen to you was personal in nature. We needed to fortify against that first. So we take practical, pragmatic preparations for that. So for, for your spouse, you do what any good advisor would tell you in the first place, and you get good, solid life insurance. doesn't lessen the physical and emotional blow at all, but it sure takes the financial consideration and makes it easier to deal with that if we were more likely to have regional weather events that we would start out with simple things like backup power sources in the form of a battery backup system and simple generator sets instead of worrying about can we produce 100% of our own electricity because if we put all these great solar panels on our roof and produce 100% of our own electricity and we have a regional weather event guess what we don't just lose the roof of the house we lose the solar panels too so maybe we needed to think small scale first that if getting laid off was more probable than an economic collapse, what did we do for that? Well, we saved cash. We got out of debt. We grew a garden in the backyard. Yes, we stored food because if we had six months of food put away, if we had six months' worth of expenses in a cash fund, and if we produced some of our own food in our backyard and mom and dad lost their job at the exact same time, we have 180 days where we can pay all the bills without any concern. And we could actually go longer that because we could feed ourselves from our food storage and from our backyard. And I realized that was the way forward. That was how to teach people about this. That was how to make people aware of the danger that they put themselves in on a daily basis by being unprepared. And as I looked at that, I went, this is really amazing. I've, I've never actually seen it put together this way before. This expanding circle of probability. And as I was looking at that, and I was getting ready to do my first few shows, I thought to myself, you know what, though? People aren't going to buy into this because of the other side. I looked into a lot of the things like, could we ever get hit by a meteor? And NASA says, yes, we could get hit by a giant meteor. Uh, it could be something that's a, it's a big problem, or it could be something that's the end of humanity. It could be any, any of those, or it could be, oh, that was kind of cool. Right? It could be a small one that burns up in the atmosphere. And there was all these things in between. But the, the civilization ending impact, do you know what they called it? A low probability, high impact event. And I said, that's the impact scale. That's what goes with this. And what that meant is, as the disaster becomes less probable, its impact increases. Let me say that again. As the disaster becomes less probable... Its total impact on civilization increases. Yes, it's a lot less probable that the United States economy will collapse and dwindle to nothing. And notice I'm saying, no, I think the dollar's doomed long term, folks. I really do. I think sooner or later we're going to have a point where we're going to have to make some real tough decisions in this country to economically tape it back together and get it going again. And we're not doing the right things now. But what I'm talking about is the point where you go out with $1,000 in your hand and, and you, you want to buy some gas or you want to buy some food and anybody that looks at you goes, that's not worth the paper that's there. I don't want it. What do you got to barter with me? That level of collapse. Even though that was not very probable, especially, let's say, in the near term, its impact was a hell of a lot bigger than, Tom, you're fired today. So with that, we had to look at an assessment of how do we make sure that we're prepared for all things. And as I looked at that, I realized, you know what, we don't even have to worry about it. We don't even have to worry about it because the third component came immediately into view once I did this analysis. And that was disaster commonality. I started thinking, hey, you know what? The food storage, the backup power systems even, the extra gas, the extra fuel, all of it. 
Every bit of it matters when you get laid off from work. You know, basically, I, I came to this realization that all of these things were the things that preppers did every day. And they were the things that the preppers that were most concerned about the low probability, high impact events were doing. But yet they helped you in the most mundane, everyday disaster. Now the person that, that I would talk to would say, I don't think we're ever going to have a global pandemic. They've been saying that since the 50s. It ain't happened yet. Oh, ye of a short mind. You, you take a time span of 70 years and you ignore human civilization of well over 10,000 years and how many pandemics have already ravaged this planet including one just a few years back from 1950, the 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic but I thought, you know what, there's no reason to push that string that's a term you might hear me use from time to time, pushing a string it means it's something, you're doing something that's futile there's no point to it, it's not going to work Try pushing a string if you don't understand what I'm talking about. So, but that person will understand that they could lose their job. And if I can make them understand how doing all these things will help them, even with something that's as likely as a job loss or the loss of a spouse, and how they can come through it. And many people go through this every day without being prepared for it. But they, they get into a fight that they're not really ready to fight. Sometimes they live, but it destroys their family. How many people have lost a job and within a year they're divorced? How many couples have gone through the horror of losing a child to death and ended up divorced soon after it? In many ways, it's because they are not prepared as best they can to deal with the tragedy. And we should be prepared to deal with these things, both to deal with them after they happen and preemptively. And what I realized is if I could sell, and at some level of it is selling, if I could sell a person on the concept that they should be prepared for disasters up to the local neighborhood disaster, that due to what's called disaster commonality, they would be fairly well prepared for just about anything that would come their way, no matter how big it was, at least far more prepared than they were before I got to them. What I mean by that is, you see, the disaster is never really the problem. Let me say that again. The disaster is never really the problem other than does it kill you now? So if a giant storm comes in and yeah, while the winds are blowing and the debris is flying, if the, the roof of the house falls in and crushes you to death, the storm is the problem. But the, the deaths from those are usually relatively low compared to the total toll that the disaster takes on people. It's after the, the storm goes away. It's been there for a few hours. It passes through. It leaves its aftermath. And in that aftermath, the things that we've come to rely on, the systems of support, are no longer there for us. And then two things happen. One, the pe- whatever people have, as far as sustainability, quickly runs out because most people run around with one to five days worth of sustainability. That means if they can't go to the store within five days, they run out of at least one thing, if not multiple things, that they actually need. Okay? And and the, the water system that brought water to their house gets cut off. And the electrical system that bought electricity to their house gets cut off. And it's dealing without these systems of support. And even if it's a giant disaster, that just means there's more people dealing without these systems of support. That means there's more opportunity for the second part of the disaster to to become a true disaster for you, and that's the reaction of the people around you to it. You see, that's the biggest danger in most disasters. The biggest danger after Hurricane Katrina was over were the people that were looting, 
raping, pillaging, shooting at people. That was the bigger danger. And that was the second shoe dropping. So those were the two things that we needed to be prepared for, was to deal with the reaction to people around us, and to deal with losing the systems of support. And once I realized that, I realized that we prepare for all disasters, from high probability, low impact, to low probability, high impact, the exact same way. We do it by making sure that we have in within ourselves the ability to substitute when our systems of support are taken away from us. That's how I put those two together. Actually, those three together. And it eventually, you know, eventually they got merged. And initially, I kind of came up with one and then came up with the other, and I would present them as two different things. Disaster probability over here, disaster commonality over here, and yeah, here's a little bit how they interact. But I realized something over time, especially as I started working on my book, these things were so intrinsically linked to each other that one simply could not deny that they were one and the same. They were absolutely absolutely linked at the hip. And they needed to be presented together, they needed to be understood together. So, as you're doing your analysis of how you're going to be going forward, how you're going to prepare, are you going to garden, are you going to have backup power, are you going to have stored food, are you going to pay off your debt? I want you to take those things and analyze your life with them. I want you to say to yourself, where does this fit in with the probability, and how does it help me do the commonality? And you'll start to realize a lot of the things that people tell you are irrational, like having 90 days worth of food or more, like Crazy Jack has six months worth of sustainability with food. That's just nuts. When would you ever need six months worth of food? Well, maybe if I didn't have an income for six months. Maybe if my power went out for six months. Maybe if society blows itself up, because it certainly can happen. Or maybe it's just something that happens to me. But one way or another, it could happen. And, you know what, I store the food that I eat, mostly. do a little bit of long-term storage as well, but mostly we store what we eat, we eat what we store. So we're going to buy the food anyway. We're going to pay for the food anyway. How simple is that? I just have conveniences that other people don't. I don't go, oh, God, you know what, we need uh, we need some eggs to make this thing. I'm going to run out to the store. Hey, you know what, I'm not a real big fan of, fan of powder of eggs, but uh, for making a cake... That we decided at the last minute we want to make a cake. We use powdered eggs for that. We also there and go. Oh man, we're out of milk. Damn it! I want milk in my coffee today. I'm gonna run out to the store. Oh, we break out a little bit of powdered milk. Yeah, not my favorite to drink powdered milk straight. But you know what? For creaming my coffee, it's better than that non-dairy creamer bullshit. And yet, and yet, if I have a financial disaster in my life. You know what? I don't have to worry about the old the old adage of putting food on the table for six months. We'll eat. Because I've paid off my debt, I don't have to worry about somebody coming and taking the house away. We've got enough cash to make the house payment for a, a long time. Because that's the only thing we have to pay for. Might have to cut back a lot. It might not be comfortable, but I'm going to sail through it a lot better than my yuppie neighbors that when we asked them to go out to have drinks and dinner with us one night, couldn't afford to do it. But yet they have a Lexus and a $60,000 SUV and their kids are about in every activity known to man under the sun. But they can't afford to go out and have some fajitas and a couple margaritas. I even thought about offering to pay, but I'm like, I'll just be reinforcing their bad behavior. So I'm not going to do it. Then I found out Dad also has a Corvette that he keeps in the garage that I never see. And you just 
look and you sigh. And I think those are the people that I don't want to mock, I don't want to condescend, I actually want to help and I want to reach. And then I call them sheeple, and a few of you get offended with, with that, and, call, and email me, and call my 800 number, and blog on my blog, and oh my god, yeah, you call them sheeple again, but they're sheeple. And they're not sheeple, because sheep aren't bad. I don't hate sheep. Sheep are useful, they have a purpose. But for God's sakes, human beings should not you know, not behave like them. And what I mean by sheep is not that you don't think the way I do. That would just be being a different kind of sheep if you just believed everything I told you without questioning it. Or not that you don't prep, or not that you don't prepare, or that you walk through life exposed, but that you believe whatever mainstream tells you. And you have two choices with mainstream. You have extremely left and extremely right. And you have a status quo kind of that they call the middle. And people that believe from that spectrum, and they don't question anything, are sheep. And likewise, I think the people that follow the total conspiracy nut jobs are also sheep. You're just following a different shepherd. And sometimes I think you guys are, you know, in the mainstream, we're following a malicious shepherd. And I think sometimes in the conspiracy realms, we're following mentally ill shepherds. But we need the capacity for independent thought. And my belief is that if human beings take time to use the capacity for independent thought, then being prepared for disaster will happen. You might use a show like mine as a research source, but you're not going to do everything I say exactly the way I say it. You're going to take the information, you're going to devise a plan for your own life. You're going to take individual responsibility for your life if you have independent thought. Because nobody with independent thought can possibly stand in the middle of a suburb today in the United States of America and look around and go, there's no risk. Nothing can ever happen. Anybody that does that is a denier. You're a denier to the human condition. You're a denier to the fact that you need oxygen to breathe, to survive. You need water to drink, to survive. You need food to eat, to survive. And you need shelter to protect you from the elements to survive. You're denying those four things. If you say, nothing can happen. But you don't need me to tell you that. All you need to do is have a moment of rational, clear thought. You'll figure that out for yourself. The first time you stick your finger with a needle by accident and it bleeds. Or you touch the hot stove when you thought it was cool. And it hurts. Or you go deep under the water swimming and you go a little deeper than you really should have. And by the time you get to the surface, you're gasping for air and you've realized, hey, I was pretty safe there, I wasn't going to drown, but God, if I was another 20 feet down, I probably wouldn't have made it. I would have took a big gulp of water and died. I need that air. As soon as you do any of those things, things that we all do daily in our lives, first time you stub your toe in the middle of the night, it wakes you up to the reality that we're human beings and we're quite frail, and that we need certain things. There's a lot of stuff in this world that's consumer bullshit. It's a big part of the things that destroy our planet that I talked about earlier. We don't need. But a lot of the things that we look at this giant system and we mock it, we don't realize how many of our needs are being provided by it. My dad had a saying when I was a kid. He used to tell me this. He used to say, Jack, let me tell you something. If we just shut the lights off everywhere, just shut the power off, cars still work, if they could still get gas in their car, but we just shut off the power, half of these people will lay down and die. They'll just lay down and die. They'll blame, they'll moan, they'll gripe, they'll grouse. But if they don't think the lights are ever coming back on, within about 30 days, they'll just quit. They'll give up. 
And sooner or later they'll die if no one goes to turn their lights back on for them. He said, now, of the 50% that are left, there's about 10 to 20% that have a clue what to do. And if you're among that 10 to 20%, you better get the hell out of the way of the other 30 to 40% that don't, because they're going to destroy things. You know what? My dad was right. Now, when I was 12 years old, I thought he was nuts. I thought those were, those were crazy, crazy words. People will lay down and die. But, you know, it makes me think of the nut job that couldn't get McNuggets from McDonald's because they were out of McNuggets. So he called, he called 911 to report McDonald's to the police department as an emergency because he couldn't get Chicken McNuggets. Yeah, we turn the lights off. That guy eventually is either going to lay down and die or he's going to be one of the 30% that destroy things. And that's the, that's the reality of the condition that we live in. But we can't sit around thinking about that and going, Oh my God, what are we going to do? Oh, there's no hope. No, all we can do is live the best damn life that we can and build up sustainability beyond the systems of support that we've come to take for granted. And let me tell you why the government hates this. I mean, they talk about being ready, and there's ready.gov and all this stuff, but they don't really want you to have sustainability. That's why they tell you, oh, you should have three days' worth of food. Three days' worth of food. How well would that have worked out for you in something like Hurricane Katrina in the middle of New Orleans? You had to go a hell of a lot longer than three days, didn't you? Sustainability means I don't need you. That's what it means. And here's where it all becomes, or all comes today full circle. And we started out talking about global warming and the manipulation of graphs and creating perceived panic by the pictures that we put in front of you. See, it is all connected. Those of you that think when I talk about global warming, I'm, I'm talking about a needlessly inflammatory political topic or whatever other crap you want to call it, you're missing the point. You're missing the whole point of disaster preparedness. If you're fully prepared... If you go six months, if I shut the electricity off to your house, if I told you you couldn't go to the store, if I said you are on your own, on your little tenth of an acre lot, or your ten acres in the country, it doesn't matter, for six months, even if you never have to do it, if you know that, if you know you could do it, I don't mean you think you can do it. I mean, you've done an analysis. You know how much food you have. You know how, that if I wanted to give everybody a 2,000 calorie or 2,500 calorie a day diet, my longevity on food in this house right now is 180 days flat. Stone cold, got it, know it. If I had to pay my, my, my mortgage payment and whatever other bills I had, I've got 180 days worth of sustainability in cash. That's not going into rating my retirement funds or my major investments. That's just a cash fund that's available to me. I can pay the bills. If you know that, hey, I might not have all my appliances working, but I've got some ability to generate a little bit of electricity, so even if I don't want to pay the electric bill, I can yank that plug out, or if something happened to it, I don't care. I'm not going to be happy about it. I'm not going to like it. But you know what? We'll watch a couple DVDs, you know, here and there, and um, I can keep, you know, enough power running to keep my deep freezer going here and there. And if I have to shoot some squirrels in the backyard to add a little bit of protein and variety to our diet, that's not a problem. I'm going to be okay. If you think to yourself, yeah, I mean, we're not going to be leaving the house much during this time, but if we have to, I've got a couple hundred gallons of gasoline or diesel fuel that's been stored properly, and I can get by with that. If you feel that way, 
If you think all those things, then when government tries to sell you or corporations try to sell you on, oh my God, what's going to happen if, if you end up in any of those situations, you know what you say to yourself? I don't care. I don't care. Let's not talk about the bullshit. Let's not talk about the fear. Let's talk about what's best long term for me and the people around me. Let's not go, oh my God, we have to act. Let's go, wait a minute, what are the consequences of our actions? And what happens if we do nothing? You start to make a logical decision-making process part of your life. You don't live in fear. You live based on power. If you do get that call, Tom, I hate to tell you this, but you've been laid off. You say, hey, Joe, let me shake your hand. It's been great working here for 10 years. The fact that this company would let me go during a downtime after 10 years of service tells me I was in the wrong place. Thanks for letting me know that. I look forward to getting on with my life. You really have that conversation. Trust me, I know. Because you don't panic. You don't care. You just walk through your life. Because losing a job, my God. I've set my life up where you can cut my power off. Make me stay in my home like a prisoner. Not give me any support whatsoever. And we can survive for six months. Do you think I give a damn that I've lost a job? And we need Americans to have, and I'll say it in a positive way, that level of arrogance. Because that's what this country used to be not very long ago. You fired a, a blue-collar worker in this country at one time. You know what he said? Huh, okay, I'll go get another job. But you know why? He was admired at $80,000 worth of consumer credit card debt because it didn't exist yet. He didn't have a car that was so expensive that he could have bought a house with the same amount of money. He didn't have a house that was so expensive that he could have bought a farm with the same amount of money. And he didn't have the debt that went with it. And people did basic preparations. They didn't call it preparations. They just did it. They knew winter came. They grew a garden. They had more than they could eat at the end of the year. They put it up. Just how the country worked. Everything that I talk about on this show is not radical. It's not extreme. It's simply looking back to the wisdom that our grandparents had and said they were pretty smart people. What if we take their wisdom, modern knowledge and technology put it together with rational planning and thought and an understanding of the dangerous situations that we have and put all that together in a way that fortifies our houses, our lives, and our families so that we can walk through any storm, no matter how difficult, and even though we may get hurt along the way, even though it may be convenient, we know there's another side to that storm, we're going to come out of the other side of that storm, and we're going to be okay. And even if, God forbid, we lose somebody along the way, those that are left will stay together. Because I hope, over the last year and a half of doing this show, you've understood one thing from me above all else when it comes to the word survival. It does not just apply to you as an individual and are you breathing tomorrow. That is the first rule. If you're not breathing tomorrow, you failed to survive. But it's not what I'm talking about, especially when I call the show The Survival Podcast. It is not The Can You Breathe Tomorrow Podcast. It's will you have the things you love and care about the most tomorrow. And for those of you that are married, 
and have kids, that's your family. And no one will ever convince you anything other than that because you know it's true. And when you lose the family, and when we as a nation lose our family units, we lose everything. In the ecosystem of humanity, the family is the forest. Bill Mollison in Permaculture says, we lose the forest, we lose everything. The whole planet lives and breathes from the forest. The forest cleans the water, the soil, and the air. The forest is our teacher. It tells us how to run our own agricultural systems. It has our medicines. It has everything that we need from a sustenance standpoint and from an educational standpoint. And I submit to you that in this the world of humanity, if we just take people aside from the planet, and we say what holds community together, what holds people together, what allows and enables education and enlightenment and compassion and passion and economies and everything else, it's a family. If we lose the family... We have nothing left as a species. It is more of what makes us what we are than opposable thumbs, folks. As long as we have the family, you can take away our opposable thumbs, we'll figure out how to deal with it. The family is paramount. And when I talk about survival, I'm talking about if you have a family, or one day you're going to go create a family if you're single now, not just getting through the disaster and still breathing, but getting through the disaster and still being able to put your arms around the people you care about. That's what this is really all about. And hopefully I've made that clear over the past 18 months. And understanding the things that threaten you and the commonalities and the dangers they present to you is a big way that you can begin to take control of those situations so no matter what happens, you make that happen. Yes, you still breathe tomorrow, but yes, you look across and you see your wife or your husband and your kids tomorrow. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It all gets spent.